Is it bright in here or what? <laughs> Do I want it less bright? <laughs> Actually, it can't really be brighter or less bright. So therefore, to want it to be less bright or brighter is um, is uh, overstepping the middle way. <laughs> I think Dogen has some saying like, um, uh, "What it, what does it mean to be un- undefiled?" Something like that, and he says. Um, not wishing for more brightness when viewing the moon. Or less color, or less brightness. There's always just the right amount. This amount. <laughs> Looking at the story today, I, I recalled... Um, 20-something years ago, living in Tassajara, once um, there was a conference at the Catholic monastery out on the coast uh, in Big Sur. New Kamaldoli uh, Hermitage is, a, is a, um, a small monastery up in the hills over the ocean. And they have, they have a long-standing relationship with Tassajara Zen Monastery. And uh, one time they invited some Tassajara people to come out to, I think it was like an interfaith conference on, um, on monastic living, something like that. So we were like the Zen representatives, and they asked me to, to um, present something about monasticism and Zen. And I brought this story from Vasubandhu's, from Vasubandhu in the Transmission of Light, uh, about um, not trying to um, to be too ascetic and not trying to be too indulgent, right? and uh, I don't know if everyone was into it, but I remember some some of the monks were like really into it. They're like, "We never heard this kind of thing before. <laughs> this is exactly it was always my intuition, but we don't have this in in Catholicism, or they didn't know of it." So we had to make, make um, Xeroxes of Vasubandhu to <laughs> give it to the monks. Uh, we're up to this point. Well, Kazan's speaking, saying, the establishing of monastic regulations or pure standards, Shingi, we say in Japanese, among the Buddha's disciples and indicating the proper conduct by Buddhas and ancestors is like this, has these kinds of practices. If you go to extremes, however, or if you become obsessed with these practices and become attached to what is proper, this becomes an affliction instead. If you reject the coming and going of birth and death, and try to seek the Dharma, 
in external practices, you will not be able to put an end to this dying here and being born there that has continued from beginningless time. What situation do you think is the time to acquire the way? So, I could hear this as, if you're invested in, in any conditioned practices, which could be like trying to limit meals or um, sit in a certain number of periods of zazen, these, these are all kind of conditioned practices. Uh, external practices, then uh, how will this address um, the unconditioned? It's kind of just, it's kind of like playing with the conditions more and more rather than uh, looking directly at the unconditioned. It's a normal thing for us humans. We're all about conditioned practices and events and activities. Uh, but if we're trying to realize the unconditioned through conditioned practices, uh, this may be difficult. And even something like zazen, we can treat as a conditioned practice. Zazen is in a certain posture, it is in a certain place, in a certain time. Uh, and we think that, that um, to fulfill that particularity, of the practice form is the thing, is, is the way, then uh, we might um, forget the unconditioned. We could say the essence of zazen is just being the unconditioned. And it does have a conditioned form. And of course, sashin is all about setting up all these conditioned forms. So we, um, we do them, uh, but not thinking that the our true self is somehow in the form. It's not apart from the form, but it's not in the form. And this is a nice line of Kazan. What situation of these conditioned situations do you think is the time to acquire the way? Or to attain the way? It's more that... Um, the time or the situation to uh, realize the way is always here, the situation, and now. It's always here and now. It must be. I think if I do these practices long enough, I'll eventually reach the way in the future. It will never be realized in the future. However, Seeking the way by concerning yourself with these things is completely confused thinking. Again, what Buddha do you see that needs to become awakened? What sentient beings do you see that can be deluded? There's not a single person who's deluded, not a single thing that has to be awakened. For this reason, though you say that delusion is turned into awakening and ordinary people are turned into sages, these are all nothing but the words of people who are not yet awakened. What ordinary persons are there that need to be awakened? What delusion is there that needs to be awakened? It just strikes me um, now, this point about uh, turning delusion into awakening is a normal way that we humans think. 
but um, even if we think of doing it um, of doing it suddenly because this is the, the school of immediacy let's suddenly turn this deluded person into an awakened person even that is a little off track and the story that just came to mind is is uh, Dung Shan, one of our ancestors in China, is walking along with his um, his Dharma uncle, Mihu, and uh, they see a rabbit suddenly jump across the path in front of them, and uh, and uh, I think it's Mihu says, well, "Swift, quick, isn't it?" And they, of course, the Zen people are always looking for an excuse to have a, a Zen dialogue. <laughs> so, they're just talking about a rabbit, but quick, isn't it? And Dung Shan says, how so? How would you say it's quick? So you know, they're sort of alluding to the sudden school here. And the, uh, and Mihu says, it's like, a, it's like a commoner suddenly being promoted to prime minister. It's that quick an uneducated commoner suddenly becoming prime minister in China. Quick, without a lot of gradual study and practice and passing all the exams and so on. So it sounds pretty good, right? A deluded person suddenly becoming awakened. But uh, Dung Shan says, a venerable old teacher like you, and you still talk that way? <laughs> And Mihu says, well, how would you say it, Dharma brother? And Dung Shan says, after generations of nobility temporarily fallen into poverty. Implying that we're inherently very wealthy and noble, and we've temporarily just forgotten that. Which is a little bit opposite then. We've been poor for so long and we suddenly got promoted to um, this great wealth and nobility. That's, the, that's, that's a kind of a little dualistic version of the sudden school. Whereas Dungshan's um, more radical, non-dual version of immediacy is it's always, we've always been generations and generations of nobility, but we temporarily have forgotten our true nature. So it's not about suddenly a deluded person becomes awakened. It's maybe more that um, immediately what we call a deluded person is realized to have always been okay. <clears throat> Kazan quotes the old Chinese teacher, Jia Shan, who says, Clearly there is no such thing called awakening, satori in Japanese. Instead, awakening deludes people. Stretch out both legs and take a nice long nap. Here there is neither true nor false. That's the verse of Jiaoshan. Actually, it's a monk asked Jiaoshan that prompted this verse. A monk asked, 
the teacher Jiashan, why am I not yet awakened? And Jiashan said, clearly there's no such thing as a called awakening. Instead, awakening deludes people like you who are asking, um, why am I not yet awakened? Stretch out both legs and take a long nap. Here there's neither true nor false. And Kazan says, truly, this is the essence of the way. Like, there's nothing particular to do. And in the same vein, um, great teacher Lin Ji uh, once said famously, when hungry, eat. When tired, sleep. Fools may laugh at me, but the wise understand. So, we have, this is, this is part of the style of Zen, to talk this way sometimes, right? And uh, I think it's best to talk this way to people who are in Sashin. <laughs> who are already, like, um, making some diligent effort to um, practice in a, in a, um, it within this form and this schedule and this and these particular practices. Um, if you say to somebody who's already stretching out their legs and napping all day <laughs> uh, that this is the way, then it's maybe not that helpful. To, to such a person, maybe it's good to say, actually, we have a sashin over at um, Austin Zen Center. Why don't you come along? So it's all about the circumstances. And remember, Kazan speaking to these... To these uh, monks in the Japanese monastery to keep things balanced to keep, to keep the middle way don't think that there's something to get here but still keep doing it that's really I think the, uh, the art of Zen practice is, is um, almost sounds like a, like a paradox a maddening crazy paradox there's, there's nothing to get and yet practice totally wholeheartedly anyway. Dogen is constantly reminding us of this kind of thing. So Kazan goes on here to say... Is it that we have forgotten, or is it that we're just, our attention is elsewhere? Or is it, is that saying the same thing? Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that what forgetting is? Yeah. <laughs> Forgetting is just um, is just uh, forgetting anything, like forgetting um, um, that we had an appointment today and we missed it or something, right? It's just our attention's elsewhere. Yeah, that's a nice point, actually. We say we, we forget our true self, um, our true nature. That just means that our attention is elsewhere. <laughs> Our, our attention is drawn by so many things, right? It's our, so many things are calling our attention, especially modern times and this, um, this culture of busyness. Uh, so many, uh, so many things like like media, right? Is calling our attention, and it's not that we need to ignore that, but just. Um, <clears throat> take some breaks sometimes from all the 
uh, the, the onslaught of, um, of objective um, colors, sounds, thoughts, and uh, images and words. That's before I have Zazen. So, uh, Kason says, though this is the way it is, stretching out both legs and taking a nap beyond true and false. Though this is the way it is, those who are just beginning to practice or starting out later in life must practice carefully and arrive at such a calm, peaceful realm. It's kind of saying, once we, (laughs) it's kind of the, the other side of the story now. Once we arrive in this calm, peaceful realm and can verify this to some extent, then then we realize that it's it's ultimately all the same. Um, but if we haven't really realized that, then it doesn't really make sense to take a nap quite yet. <laughs> Kazan says, The reason is that if you've never understood this true realm, you can be deluded by others' words. Interestingly, you can, of, of course, be deluded by your own thoughts, but you can also be deluded by other... Um, Dharma teachings, even. It's a good point, I think. Therefore, if you try to see this realm by raising your eyes to externals, you will be disturbed by a Buddha demon. Demon in, in Chinese here is Ma, which is often is like an abbreviation for Mara. So it's almost like a Buddha Mara. <laughs> uh, a, um, a demon in disguise, a Buddha. Even though today you hear things like this being said and realize that there's nothing to be attained, still there may be a teacher, a, a good friend, who says that there is something to be attained. Or a Buddha demon appears who says there's something to be practiced. The result will be that you will become agitated and confused. Or you will waver in your trust. There are so many practices, even within Zen, you can hear so many different uh, instructions and you should really practice this and that. Like this morning I said like, I recommend everybody sit Zazen every day for 30 to 40 minutes. And then somebody could say, okay, Kokyo said to do that, so I'm going to like get myself on the cushion. Oh, it's like, it's like, you know, 11.30 and, ten, and I forgot to see Zazen today and I'm so tired, but I got to do it because I said I would. Koko the Buddha demon. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's natural that there's so many different teachings and, and instructions on what to practice. So, I think maybe it's, we just have to actually um, hear them all. <laughs> and uh, I think there was this old practice of going and visiting many teachers, right, and, and hearing many teachings and practices. And over time, we start resonating with some more than others, naturally. And that changes, too, I think. I, I, that's what I find in my practice. Things I used to, practices I used to resonate with, even understandings I used to resonate with are a little different now. So it evolves and changes and, um, but if we have a big um, w- range of what's possible and, and try different things, then we more and more can see what is 
works for us. And it may be different for different people. More different things are appropriate for different people. Even the Buddha tried all these different practices before his awakening. He practiced with other teachers right, in India and learned practices and mastered them even and still felt like, uh, no, nah, it's not quite complete. So uh, I remember once that um, I was uh, practicing in Japan at Bukokuji and it was a Soto Zen temple but also kind of a, a, a Rinzai blend, hybrid kind of practice. So they offered koan practice. Really, um, they offered, there were kind of three practices going on at Bukokuji. It was nice because they really defined it's these three practices you could do, and it was kind of you, you, work, you decide with the teacher in collaboration what you're going to do, and you can move from one to another, but it's, it's not just like, well, I'll try this today or that today. It's a nice, straightforward way. One of them was called um, Zuisoku, means um, following the breath. And I think that at that temple, they recommended everybody just beginning practice, everybody starts with Zuisoku for weeks, months, or years, following breath practice. But then two others were offered, one called Shikantaza, just sitting, as distinguished from breath following, and another called Muji, which is um, uh, practicing with a Mu Koan. See, it wasn't really like they had the whole Rinzai Koan system there where you work through whole collections of koans. Like, everyone who was doing koan practice was just doing Mu Koan. Does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Mu, which means... No, <laughs> there isn't a, such a thing. And you just sit with this no, no, no. Do I have a, no? But what about the no? Well, come on, can we just no? <laughs> you breathe this no with anything that comes up. No, that just slices through any um, questions. Just say no. <laughs> Sometimes we do it out loud. The whole, like the last period of Sashin, um, last period of the day, each day of Sashin, we would do out loud move where they ring a bell and the whole Zen would be everyone facing the wall, just no! Like as loud as you can. <laughs> kind of unusual. Until your throat is sore. <laughs> oh, uh huh. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's that, it's that um, Harada Yasutani lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, I thought at this point in my practice, um, I, I had quite a bit of faith in Shikantaza. I had tried some different things like breath following and so on, and I came there practicing at least my attempt at just sitting with no special um, form or method. And I, I did trust it, but I also thought this is a great opportunity at, at, um, at this temple where you can, training with this teacher, I can do this Muji thing. I'm not going to be able to do this with a teacher at um, 
back at San Francisco Zen Center, and I'm, I'm here for a year. I should probably take that up, I thought, when I first got there. And then, after, uh, you know, I told him I was, I was trying to practice Shikantaza, and he, uh, Tongan Harada Roshi approved that. And, and after some months being there, one time he brought up in Dokusai, um, you know, if you'd like to while you're here, if you want to, if you want to um, get really, really concentrated, I'll offer you this practice of Muji. And uh, when I finally got this opportunity, I was kind of surprised myself and actually said, actually, no thanks. Um, I just, I really trust this Shikantaza thing. I, uh, even though I have this opportunity to try something new, I'm, a pa- I'm passing it up. I'm just going to keep s- just sitting. Uh, but I would never call uh, my venerable teacher, Harada Tongan Roshi, a Buddha demon. But, uh, but it was, maybe he was kind of testing me, like, how about another practice? And, and it's even offering this goal. You, you can get really, really focused with this. And I'm, you know, I wasn't really that focused. <laughs> but uh, I remember that, sort of like being tested with a, a little carrot of like, you want some new special practice that you've never done that you could do? No, no, thanks. It's okay. <laughs> Indeed, you have received the true instruction of the Buddha. You should practice carefully and reach the realm of peace and happiness, ease and joy, yourselves, or this is jiko, you could translate it as, reach the realm of ease and joy of the self. Once a person reaches this realm of tranquility and happiness, She will be like someone who has eaten her fill. Even though they say that there's a royal feast, he will not be interested. Therefore, it is said in Zen, exquisite food has no appeal for someone who's already full. The ancients also said, once troubled, now serene. Kazan goes on. Once you see carefully the original mind of the true self that sees no Buddhas and no sentient beings, once you see carefully, you will know that the self original mind sees no Buddhas and no sentient beings. How could you reject delusion and seek awakening after recognizing that? Ever since the ancestral teacher Bodhidharma came from India in order to make people see directly, Zen teachers have not spoken of having wisdom or not having wisdom or ancient learning and new learning. They have just made people sit up straight and calmly abide in the true self. This itself is the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. 
the Dharma gate of ease and joy. We chanted that um, this morning in the Fukan Zazangi. Dogen talks about um, uh, the Zaza and he speaks of um, is not learning meditation or not the training in concentrating the mind. It's simply the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, says Kazan's quoting that here. This, this sitting up bright, calmly abiding in the true self is the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. Therefore, people from incalculable eons in the past to the present, you have thought that not being confused is confusion. I think he's saying, there's a realm that's not confused, but we think it's confusion. Do not vainly become concerned with the glittering frost on someone else's gate and forget the jewel of the self. A close friend, I, Kazan, now meets you. And I think this is a reference to um, one of the parables in the Lotus Sutra where uh, there's a, a, um, a person whose um, two friends are, are out drinking and one of them gets really drunk and passes out. And the, uh, his friend has to go. But he's like, well, um, my poor friend here, um, when he uh, sobers up, he's, he's going to want a cab home. <laughs> says in the Lotus Sutra. <laughs> uh, and um, I know he's actually kind of, he's, he's kind of a poor person. So um, I'll give him this, this really valuable jewel. So um, um, when he wakes up, he'll, he'll not only can take a cab home, but he can, he can go out for a nice breakfast. And I'll leave him with that because I got to go. So where, if I, if I just put it in his pocket, somebody else might come by while he's passed out here and steal it. So let me like sew it into his clothing, this precious jewel. So he does that and leaves. And of course, this the friend um, wakes up and and um, doesn't have any money for a cab, so he has to walk miles home. And uh, he never occurs to him that there'd be a jewel sewn into his clothing. <laughs> so. Um, scrounges up some some old leftovers for breakfast and so on. And meanwhile this is priceless jewel. Uh, so that's one of the one of the metaphors in the Lotus Sutra is um we all have this precious jewel sewn into our clothing and uh, but we just aren't aware of it. It's a wish fulfilling jewel and it's it's um of great value but we go um through our days uh, without appreciating this. So, uh, Kazan says, um, uh, don't forget the, the jewel of yourself or your own jewel. A close friend now meets you. His close friend gives us the jewel. And uh, Dogen in his One Bright Jewel essay, referring to the Lotus Sutra story, says, um, we always receive the jewel when we're drunk. 
This is it. Uh, I, I think referring to um, we're con- we're confused. This jewel we're we're given this jewel in our delusion and confusion, and uh, that's why we're unaware that it's that it's actually given to us. What did that mean in the earlier statement about what we think is confusion? It's not. We have thought um, for a long time. We've thought that. Not being confused is confusion, which I would take to be. Um, um, we think uh, that this realm that we're living in is total confusion, but actually, in its that in its true nature, the essence of what's happening right now is not confusion at all. This is the pure, radiant jewel. That's how I would understand it. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? Because usually we'd say, um, for a long time we've 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 um, we think that we're not confused when we really are confused. But it's the reverse of that. We think that we're um, confused when we're really not confused. Kazan's saying both are true. Or another uh, translation is, uh, for a long time you've thought that. What is not mistaken is mistaken. I think it's like we're, we're projecting um, confusion and mistakenness onto this perfectly pure um, reality that we're living in right now. This, this is the pure realm of all the Buddhas. Every, there's just one mind of our true nature um, boundless and all-inclusive, which therefore means everything that's happening in this realm is an expression, is a manifestation of pure awareness. There's no exceptions. But we think that almost everything is an exception. <laughs> that, uh, well, there's, you know, what about all my problems? All my problems are like pure radiant light. From the perspective of pure radiant light, your, your interpretation, let's call it, I like much more than what I was thinking in your confusion. But Dogen has said, in your confusion, you've been given this jewel. Right, so in a kind of more conventional way, I was thinking of it as, yes, we're confused. Hmm. Um, we're hurting. Here's a, here's a practice for you in the form of this jewel. Uh-huh. It'll get you home, it'll mm-hmm. uh, get you a nice breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, Not even a practice, but a, a just um, an effortless, um, you know, it's, it, the gift is so great, it's like, you don't even need to work for your breakfast um, <laughs> with this jewel. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's everything, everything beneficial will come to you if you just recognize that you have this jewel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, that ju- the jewel of non-confusion. Right? So, um, but we're um, confused about that non-confusion because we don't see it. The jewel that's with us, the non-confused jewel that's with us. We're just confused about how we're going to get our breakfast. <laughs> so, again, Kazan says, um, from incalculable eons in the past to the present. You have thought that not being confused 
is confusion. It's kind of like oh, like a koan. Like, huh? <laughs> Do not vainly become con. Oh wait, let's see. What's that? And they said the other translation was mistaken, so not being mistaken yeah. or not being confused. For eons in the past, you have thought that what is not mistaken, this jewel, it's not mistaken, you have thought is mistaken. You have thought that, um, or, you know, that yourself is mistaken, but actually you're truly yourself is not mistaken. You can hear it in these ways. It's the same thing like when we chant about um, Buddhas who are aware that they're deluded uh, are awake. Yeah. And, and Buddhas who think they're awake are actually deluded. Yeah. Um, th- those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. Those who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings. Dogen says in the Genjo Koan. Um, yeah, those who have, uh, those who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings. And those who have great realization of delusion, or those who truly understand delusion, are Buddhas. So that's another one of those kind of counterintuitive uh, sayings, a great one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you know? Know what? <laughs> if you're deluded or not. <laughs> what would delusion be? Suffering. Yeah. If we're if we're suffering, that means we feel like something is lacking, and um, and that this realm is not okay. And uh, so we could say that's, that's based on, on um, a delusion or a um, yeah, misperception. Uh, so that is a, a, good, a good clue. <laughs> if, we're, if we're suffering, there is delusion. I think the Buddhas generally say that. Um, but those who have great realization of delusion, those who understand delusion as delusion, are Buddhas. Those who say, oh, this delusion, I see, I see what, this delusion is just, um, it's just based on this old, old habit of, um, of thinking that I, the separate self, am, like, am the owner and controller of my experience. And uh, that's really who I am, is just this limited body and mind, or this limited owner of this body and mind, and, uh, um, and uh, now I understand what that delu- how that delusion works, and how that's come to be, and how painful that delusion is, and the more I understand that, the more I like, um, can be free right in the midst of it, because I understand it. Usually we don't understand, we're just wallowing in delusion, but we don't understand the delusion, like, I'm suffering and I shouldn't be and I don't know why but then then uh, Dharma keeps um, helping us understand why we're suffering. Mm. Tugan also says that um, 
Buddhists who are truly Buddhists also notice that they are Buddhists. So maybe understanding isn't even necessary in some way. Like, just be a Buddha uh-huh. without knowing it or understanding yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets tricky because mm-hmm. you can say, yeah, I'm just like a total suffering Buddha that doesn't know I'm Buddha. And somebody else could say, wow, there's a Buddha. There's a suffering Buddha. Um, yeah, ultimately speaking, um, it's all always okay. And um, yet, without appreciating that in some way, then um, even being Buddha doesn't, um, doesn't help us. And so it's, always, it's, it's ultimately speaking, yeah, uh, even if we don't know a Buddha, we can still be Buddha. But um, but if we don't have some trust, at least in that, then um, then then we really like can have a whole life of suffering without appreciating the jewel. But that's a little bit like to say that is like well we have to trust this is a little bit like stepping down a little bit from the the ultimate because then it's like. But it's trusting it and not trusting it. So it's, tr- it's a little tricky. We can speak from the complete level where whether you trust it or not doesn't matter. Or like this poem, stretch out both legs and take a nap. Here there's neither true nor false. It's really like a statement from the ultimate. Um, and then as we're like, as we're, as we're napping there with our legs stretched out, yeah, these are shooting or faults, but like I got a lot of problems actually. <laughs> and then, uh, and well, then the world has a lot. Of and the world has a lot of problems too. And um, maybe I should like take up some practice to address this. Now we're sort of back into duality, but but it's helpful. And then maybe the practice um, reminds us of oh yeah, this really there really is no true and faults here. And then um, then we stretch out again. Take another nap, and then like, um, what was that again? I don't need. I need to see some zazen. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of like that sometimes, right? Again, it's like the middle way. We go to the we we stretch out our legs for long enough, and we want to sit some zazen, and then we sit zazen long enough. We want to stretch out our legs. And in between is the middle way. It's all really can be the middle way, but we can um, notice that we can we can fall a little into the ultimate side or fall a little into the conventional side in a one-sided way. Yes. Um, it sounds like there's um, a thread going through this, which is about clinging or uh, attachment. Yeah. And you know, I think I've heard that. Uh, Delusion is about clinging mm-hmm. to fixed views, yeah. and it's about becoming attached to any particular yeah. thing as a permanent situation, mm-hmm. a permanent. Uh, this is how it is. Mm-hmm. This is how it's always going to be. It's not going to change. Yeah, it's going to be like this forever. Mm. And if you get there, you're like, "Wow, this is going to be awful. This is going to be a hell wrong." <laughs> um, so it's about like not sticking, being stuck. Yeah, any fixed views, grasping any fixed views. Mm-hmm. Being fluid a little bit, mm-hmm. being able, and, and from, from a perspective of someone 
who thinks that clarity is knowing exactly what this is mm. at this moment. Mm. Confusion, it, it would look, being having a non-dual awareness would look like confusion. It would be like, I'm lost. It would look like being lost. Because it's stuck in it? Well, it's, it's from, a, from the perspective of someone who thinks that a fixed view is the correct way to look at reality. Uh-huh. A non-dual awareness would look like confusion. So before about the, the idea mm. when you, uh-huh. used to, you know what I'm saying, about the confusion and the, what looks like, used to, from, from mm. countless eons, Clear. what looked like, uh, you thought that what looked like uh, non-confusion was... What looked like... Um, what, was this, what, was this, <laughs> what was truly non-confusing we think of as confusion. Yeah. Uh, right. So you're saying that... Um, that uh, uh, we, we could get to, we could get really certain about this about the true self, and then that would even that would be a kind of could be a kind of confusion. Correct. Yeah, I think if it's yeah if it's a conceptual um, certainty, with you know based on like ideas of it, like that sounds really good, and let's hold hold that one. So, um, but I think if there if there can be a non conceptual confirmation. There is no grasping there. I think that's the key. If there's a little bit of conceptuality of like, yes, this is the way it is, and Kazan says it here, and there, and it's in print, and you can't erase it. True self is it. And then it's like, this is all just conceptually packaged, and a graspable idea that's trying to prop up our self so we won't suffer. Yeah, there's totally that danger. Um, but if, there could, if it's more like there's its deep trust and confirmation of true nature beyond the concepts, which is hard to talk about that because we talk about it would be concepts. But um but that then there could then that could include and does include everything. So it can include doubts and can include um um tendencies to um want to reify ideas and all. And there's an aware- awareness is watching all that and um Awareness with its legs stretched out <laughs> is is um, watching all these tendencies to um, conceptualize it and reify it, and it's and it's like all that can happen. It's okay. Um, like uh, what was the? Uh, I think it was the second ancestor said to Bodhidharma. Um, I am always clearly aware, and words can't reach it. So if, if um, Bodhidharma said, well, if that sounds like some words, are those words reaching it? And he said, no, those words don't reach it either. Uh, Bodhidharma maybe would let him go. <laughs> yes? On a similar note, the, um, what Richard's brought up, the other night when, uh, during our precept group, we were reading, we were reading through Being Upright, and... There's this section where Dred talks about the god in the park and his karma, and he's kind of expanding on it. And one of the people in the group brought up this question about how in the text, Rev doesn't seem to give an answer, like a clear, this is why I did what I did, or after all this reflection, this is what the conditions were. And she seemed a little upset that he didn't have a, a some clarity 
and said something like, well, you think that practicing zazen for so many years and developing an awareness, you would be able to have some clarity around the, your conditioning. Hmm. And this led to this very uh, robust conversation hmm. in the group hmm. about what awareness meant. Hmm. And it's reminding me of this conversation, it's reminding me of that uh, that discussion about what is awareness and whether or not it's conceptual. And so, ha you know, one of the things that came up was having a story about what happened or what one's conditions, what conditions were at play is just a story. Yeah, that would be like, uh, I would say, more like a dualistic consciousness that knows um, particular things. So it is, but it's a very interesting point that I, and I think it's true that, um, that this um, boundless awareness of the true self um, can seem to be um, obscured or hidden or masked by many things. Um, that's kind of what all these teachings are saying, right? Like, the, like the jewel is just there, perfectly pure, but it's, but it seems to be hidden, and uh, it can even seem to be hidden by um, so-called blind spots. So blind spots in people are like. Um, Areas where their, in a way, you could say their conceptual consciousness hasn't reached. Doesn't that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like um, they're just, they're just blind spots are kind of conditioned phenomena, and by definition, a blind spot means like you can't see it until something points it out. Something, mm -hmm. some conditions come to reveal it. It's not like, it's not like, okay, I'm gonna sit here and meditate on my blind spots now. <laughs> You can't do it because that's what a blind spot is, right? You can try to... I think sometimes when we're sitting, we actually um, do discover blind spots. Just by in the stillness and the presence of zazen, we start recognizing things about ourselves, conditioned aspects of ourselves that we haven't recognized before. So I think sometimes we do, but some blind spots are, like, um, are deep, right? And it's not exactly the fault of the person, it's, I think a blind spot, also by definition, you can't blame a person for a blind spot. Because if they have some inkling of a blind spot, and, um, and then they try to turn away from it, and like, let's not look at that, then you might be able to blame a little bit, right? <laughs> Say, no, if you, if you have an inkling, then maybe it's a good area to look. Um, but... Yeah, but the blind spot itself is a manifestation of the of the true self, and uh, so it does seem like um, like uh, a deep practice doesn't necessarily reveal all psychological blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. right. I think that would that makes sense. Some might argue that. The, at least the idealized version of a fully enlightened Buddha, like Shakyamuni Buddha, when they say um, the, one of the Buddhist qualities is sarvanyana, that means like all-knowing, often translated as omniscience. That would almost imply, I kind of think that traditionally the implication is a Buddha has no blind spots, there, but there's only like one fully enlightened Buddha in any, um, you know, eon. <laughs> so um, if we can't go back and check with Shakyamuni Buddha um, 
And some might point out that he did have blind spots, but others might say what looks like his blind spots were just some kind of skillful means that we don't understand yet that were that were um, arising in his social um, setting. But I think for most of us, it's like, uh, uh, yeah, one could one could fully um, trust their Buddha nature in the deepest possible way, and there still could be blind spots. Do you think? Mm-hmm. And they ca- it can't be helped. But that's why then it's nice for such people to practice with others, which is also can't be helped usually unless you're really hiding out in the mountains and then you still the squirrels will point out your blind spots <laughs> but actually it's good it's good to uh, practice with humans too and even better to practice with humans in a sangha of practitioners wow it's awesome because they will help point out blind spots <laughs> they're very good at it just by practicing together right um, without even intending to it's like Hmm, they said that, oh, I wonder why they said that, or they looked at me that way. It's, oh, sometimes we get little inklings, right, of, like, hmm. <laughs> but sometimes the blind spot is totally blinding, as in, mm-hmm. even when it has been pointed out to you, uh, even explicitly, mm-hmm. you still, well, I guess you would then be in denial, mm-hmm. but when you really don't believe it, mm-hmm. You can't see it. Mm. It's still, it, well, there's that kind. People can be wrong too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's part of the it's tricky business. Yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily that the blind spot pointers are always correct, right? So it's tricky business. But if we're op- if we're open to the whole conversation in with with everybody, that even if somebody is totally off base, pointing out a blind spot. Still, it's like information. Somebody, um, somebody. Uh, there's some conditioning in my relationship with this person that they say that to me. And if two people say it, then we really have something interesting. Like two people can also definitely be wrong, especially in cults and things like Zen centers are cults. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say, even without other people, like. We can sort of glimpse a blind spot and then kind of go back to sleep with it. So yeah, 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 totally. You know, somebody can suggest it, or we can even see it and then still be really uh, liable to fall into yeah. the same thing. Because actually, it's kind of painful to see a blind spot. It's, I think it's one of the most painful things because it's kind of like it's this mix. It's a bittersweet thing, right? Because it's like, as a practitioner, it's a bittersweet thing. I think because it's bitter because. Um, I'm really trying to practice well, and I've, I've had that blind spot for so long. Yeah. And then the sweet is, um, and that's exactly what my practice is trying to reveal, is to see all that stuff. Yeah, the hard work of, of practice. Hmm. You always talked about uh, stones, like at the creek in mm-hmm. Tassahara, how they bang together. Yeah. Yeah, smooth each other's blind spots out. <laughs> that's, that's right. We might wonder whether Kazan Zenji had some blind spots. <laughs> and because uh, all these ancestors, 
they um, they talk in such an exalted way. Right? Um, it's always so positive, and it's hard to and and also this is what's being presented as the recorded sayings. It's the polished, finished product. So we and their day to day interactions. Sometimes I think it would be so great to just like hang out with Dogen and Kazan and see what they're like and in uh, flesh and blood. We we don't know, you know, if, I mean, cultures are different too, right? Yes. I mean, we were very individualistic mm-hmm. culture. We had to think in our own, of our own psychology. Yes, that's right. And I don't know whether they did. I've thought of that because... Different, you know, different. We look into what's happening with us in Zazen, but Dogen, I mean, he never talked about, you know, dealing with Zazen with his mother dying when he was seven or eight. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's very little talk, even, interestingly, even about suffering in the classic Zen texts. You yeah. think the, the Buddha sutras do talk about it more, but um, classic Zen writings from China and Japan, um, it's interesting. Sometimes it's there, but... Um, it's a lot about um, del- it's a lot about delusion and awakening about about um, getting the view right or wrong. It seems to be a big emphasis in, in Zen, and um, not so much about emotions in general either. Right, and I think in modern times we think that's like one of the main areas we're practicing with, and um, it could be a cultural thing, it could be a stylistic thing, or it could be just that. Um, Part of the style of the Zen tradition, as I understand it, is um, it's really emphasizing very strongly, pointing out this true nature, true self, Buddha nature, emptiness, uh, is like um, with this trust that if we can really get that deeply and experientially, then um, all the conditioned stuff, like emotions and blind spots and stories and relational things, all that stuff will like fall into place around that. Whether it will or not is, is another question, but I, I think that's what, what the classic Zen teachings are like, are putting their trust in, is that um, they're pointing to the ultimate and uh, staking everything on that putting all their eggs in this one basket. And in modern America, I think we don't do that so much in Zen teaching. And uh, it's maybe a good thing. We don't. As long as we don't forget that um, that's, you know, kind of heart of original Zen, which is why we have Denkoei Shin. <laughs> yes? Um, speaking of that, speaking of this, the study of the self, right, which is of course, the Buddha way, right? Mm. So the G- the self, as I understand it, the Jiko is composed of the skandhas, right? It's, is that correct? It's just it's. Well, um, is that right? The self is the skandhas. It's the, all these perceptions, all these. Were you here yesterday? No. Oh uh, yeah, we, we, I think we talked about yesterday um, different types of self. So I think we uh, um, these days I like to talk about three different types of self. And I think it's really good. At least we need two to have a a Dharma discussion. But in in these Buddha nature teachings, really they bring in a third. And they're they're quite distinct. 
And, uh, and I, th- I think every time we use the word self, we should say, is it, are you talking about one, two, or three? So, um, like, so the, like the universal self or the... So I would say, we say the skandhas, I would say this, let's call this number one self is like, is the, um, I, yesterday I was calling it the causal series of body and mind experiences. Right. Body and mind experiences is shorthand for five skandhas. Right. And causal series means um, these, this set of skandhas is a rising and ceasing moment to moment. And that series of skandhas arising dependent on previous skandhas is, creates this illusion of something that's continuous, but actually it's impermanent five skandhas. Uh, we could call that the conventional self. And, um, and, then, and that one's actually not a problem when we talk about anatman. We're not talking about that self that doesn't exist. That one is not the root of all our suffering, I would propose. It might be the root of very subtle suffering, but um, generally it's a good, it's a good um, thing to understand that there is such a self and that there is this causal series so that um, there will be a, a body and mind tomorrow that will um, suffer the consequences of today's body and mind. So today we should take care of this body and mind because we understand that it's part of the causal series. Like, uh, like one teacher said, um, we should brush our teeth today, not because we're going to get a cavity today, but because we know there's a causal series. If we don't brush this body's teeth today, a future body dependent on this body will get cavities. So that's helpful to see this causal series self and it's not the one that we grasp and suffer due to then we say number one conventional self then we have the false self the illusory false self which would be like this mental projection of um we could we could say like an owner of the conventional self a controller, a possessor, a um, manager, a judger, an assessor of the causal series. And there isn't really such a thing as that. Or we could say, if there's such a feeling that there's such a thing, it's part of the causal series. But we'd like extract it and say, no, that's who I feel myself to be, is the, is the owner of this uncontrollable causal series. And that's the one that I that I would propose when the Buddha is talking about anatman, that's the self that, that doesn't actually exist. It's not even conventionally true. It's, it's a false self. It's an illusion. And it is the root of all our own personal existential suffering. So it's nice to distinguish, every time we say self, to distinguish between, and that's, I think, all Buddhist schools would, would have some version of these two. And when Dogen says to study the Buddha ways, to study the self, he doesn't say which. But I, um, I, I would propose, although I think I've seen it different in different commentaries, I think it's the false self works nicely for that saying because then to study that self is to forget that self. We study the illusion of like, I feel like there's some owner of my experience here. And we study that carefully, it disappears and we forget it, that self, and we forget that self, then, then the causal series is just actualized by myriad things. 
And just to finish the story, the third type of self is not all Buddhist traditions would, would um, jive with this one, but this would be like the true self. And, um, and I would say it's neither one of those. I said the true self would be like this unborn awareness. It's not personal. It includes right. all beings. Yeah. So I guess what my, what my point was, or I was getting at was that the, I, the, you know, you said that they don't talk much about suffering in these texts. Yeah. Like, they don't talk about the war of whatever, 1230 or whatever, yeah. whatever specific. And there, and there was a lot of societal suffering of in Dogen's time, totally. Kings, Starvation. Warlords and totally war. famine. And Horrible. So they're pointing towards something that's beyond all that. Yeah. That's what I'm at. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Something uh-huh. that's beyond all those sort of causal mm-hmm. factors that they wouldn't, they don't think are as important. I would even add in, I think times it, society was much worse off in Dogen's Japan than than Trump's America. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we just compare. And isn't it interesting, I think it's interesting, that um, they didn't get involved in talking about that stuff, at least in the recorded texts. <laughs> Did you have more about the self? No, I was, just, oh. I was just trying to get to that aspect of like what you were saying about They didn't really talk about it. Enough. Yeah, yeah. Pointing, at something else. pointing, and I think Dharma has, has traditionally yeah, pointed at something else. Same with the Buddha's time. There was wars going on, there was corrupt um, politics going on, and the um, Buddha in his definition of... Um, of idle chatter, a kind of false speech is like idle gossip or idle chatter is any talk about politics. <laughs> it's like it was going on, people were suffering because of it. And the Buddha's like, we're actually gonna go this other direction. And we can, I don't know whether that's a good thing or not, but it's interesting to look at the history of our tradition in this way. There's some, there's some there though in the Pali Buddha talks to some leaders yeah. himself. He he talk he goes, and yeah, and and uh, conflicts in the sangha he talks about, and he sometimes makes the um, says, he meets with some politicians and says, um, um, if you want your town to be in harmony, like you should meet regularly and you should have follow precepts and things like that. I think it's, but he's, I think it's then he's um, kind of talking with the leaders. I don't think he's talking with the monks about the leaders that I recall. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, you, you mentioned, you talked about intention yesterday as a, as a moment-to-moment thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does vow play? Does vow play a role in, in, in your in intention? Um, yeah, you could say vow is a kind of intention, mm-hmm. as I would understand it. Yeah, vow is like, like a very conscious intention. The way we talked about it yesterday was every moment of consciousness has some kind of intention in the early Buddhist teachings. is often unconscious intentions. So you could say vow is making a very conscious and strong intention. But I think that's right. That's what it is. That would influence this unconscious intention. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, that a, a strong conscious intention then influences the unconscious intentions. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the function of it. And, and, and uh, yesterday we were talking about our intention, chetana, is this mental factor. And like all mental factors in the mind, 
it dependently arises. It's conditioned on other mental factors and also environmental factors like whether it's sunny or rainy affects unconsciously affects our intentions. Um, and I would say the same is ultimately true about vow, even though it seems like we're making a conscious, strong intention. If we're saying, I'm choosing to do that, I think really strictly speaking, even the most conscious, clear, um, self-generated vow, strictly speaking, is must also be just conditioned. Right. Because there is no separate self to make a vow. There's just a conditioned causal series. But we feel, again, you could say the illusory separate self sometimes feels like I'm going to make a vow to save all beings. And I did it by myself. (laughs) And uh, we see that, no, it's really all these conditions. If we say that the vow arose um, due to all these conditions is more accurate. And almost like, and if we, if a great vow comes and we vow to save all beings, um, it's nice to think this way because then we're we're less proud of like, yeah, I I generated this vow. It's more like all beings gave me this vow. Any vow that we make is like, is um, is given or received from all conditions known and unknown. And uh, Dogen talks this way particularly about bodhicitta, is, is this great vow, right? And he says, he specifically says, um, you don't arouse bodhicitta on your own, and Buddhas don't um, just give it to you on their own. It's in the mystical communion of you, the sentient being, and the Buddha, kano doko, in that, in that meeting of the sentient being and the Buddha, this vow of bodhicitta is born, which is a beautiful way of talking, I think. It's almost like the meeting of the, um, the relative conventional truth of appearances where I'm reading some text that inspires me to take refuge and the inconceivable ultimate truth of Buddha that's like our, our, our own Buddha nature that's, that's always like um, always telling us 24-7 like Take refuge in me, Buddha. Even when we're asleep, it's saying, "Just take refuge in me, and everything will be okay." And like, but we usually—it's sewn into our clothing. That voice, that little like, that little speakerphone, <laughs> is sewn into our clothing. It's so many thick layers we don't hear it. <laughs> yes. Because everything will be okay. Ah. <laughs> Ultimately. Yeah, yeah, and and we're still in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, everything will be okay as um, as birth and death arise and cease, as um, as um, horrible delusion causes great violence, yes. as beautiful love expresses itself. Uh, all all of that um, will be okay. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, I I'll admit that's a it's a radical teaching, right? And um, and sometimes such a such a radical teaching, we don't want to accept it because we um, feel like it will undermine our compassion. Yeah, exactly. Don't we? Yeah. We're afraid of okayness, right? Because um, 
it will undermine our hard work to improve the problems of the world. That's a, a, a normal and, and um, reasonable um, fear. I think so. Uh, and at the same time, I have this intuition that, that the, um, the more we open to the true okayness, which is not separate from the not okayness, yeah. it's the background, it's the, it's the host of the, the okayness is the host of the not okayness. The more we um, open to and trust that, that actually it's the, the effect is, it will be the reverse, that we'll want to take care of the problems even more. And we won't become apathetic. Um, but it might be surprising how we want to take care of them. <laughs> it might be... I think especially... Um, especially it w- such an opening will help us take care of like moment-to-moment um, helping like the people that we meet moment to moment, mm-hmm. which I really think is what is the Bodhisattva, really hard of the Bodhisattva vow. And um, I think we have, of course all know that's important, but some, I think a, a modern trend in, um, this is a big topic, I hesitate to even go there, but I think a modern trend of, of uh, American Buddhism is, is this, we feel like this new discovery that the Bodhisattva vow is not just like meeting those that we meet moment to moment, but it's in this much larger context of like, um, you know, um, more abstract ways of like uh, idea ways of helping, and maybe in the political arena, for example. Social again, justice. social justice. Yeah, yeah, and I think again, social justice can be meeting people moment to moment, individual people, and it can even be individual signing of an individual petition, an individual casting a vote, an individual um, speaking up about an issue, right? Those are all like specific actions in time and space. So that's where I think Bodhisattva vow really comes in. But I think when it gets really abstract, we just got to like... fix all this, but in the abstract sense, then sometimes I wonder if we spend a lot of energy thinking about it without actually the moment-to-moment actions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. One could also say, but actually, but those abstract discussions maybe lead to specific actions. So in that way, they could be part of the cause-and-effect thing. But, um... It's something I wonder because I think it's good also to notice that it is a trend, <laughs> in, that it's, you don't find it right in in the old teachings, and um, and could it be, it could be a new discovery about a, a, about ancient blind spots, or it could be a distraction from verifying the way moment to moment you know, specifically. Or it could be both, or neither. (laughs) 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 Yeah. This is maybe a little off topic, but I I was just reading the other day about um, Shogu Matsu. I guess Dogen rejected this idea that, and I don't know if this is what Buddha really said, that like, there's the 500 years after him, Uh, and the Mapo. 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 Mm-hmm. Mapo. 
Mm -hmm. yeah. like the um, the age of decline. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, he rejected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought that was interesting. Jordan and rejected the idea. Is that, I think so. It was in the people could still get enlightened yeah. during the difficult third time, and that it was like really important that they get enlightened during that. Mm -hmm. That they. Practice. I think he says something like we well, our practice makes the age of decline into um, the age of true dharma. And it, it, again, in a moment-to-moment -moment specific way, it's not like we change the whole age, but like one moment of true kindness is a moment of true dharma. It's a moment-to-moment -moment thing rather than buying into the kind of Buddhist cosmology where, where the whole dharma, everything's steadily declining. It's kind of a depressing idea. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. We have an evening service dedication has something like that, right? May their power and liberation... May renew the true dharma in the age of decline. Yeah, yeah, so I think he's, because he's a, a, about here and now, um, whereas other people used the age of decline teaching as a kind of skillful means. That's how I understand, um, like, Shinran and Honen, uh, the Pure Land founders in Japan, lived at the same time as Dogen, and they were really into, like, basing their whole system on this theory of the age of decline, in a, what they thought would be a really skillful way, which is basically, um, as I understand it, it's like, because this is the age of decline, no one can realize awakening on their own anymore. We just don't have the merit and virtue. We don't have the conditions. We can't do this on our own. Like, like in Buddha's time, the arhats could just practice deeply and awaken. But um, uh, we can't anymore. Therefore, instead of just like, well, just forget it, therefore we have to rely on Amitabha Buddha um, with total faith and trust that I, this totally deluded person, cannot do anything myself. Please, Buddha, save me. It's like a devotional. Devotional. And, and like, that might sound funny to us because it, not in that tradition, but I think it can be a really skillful teaching. It's like surrender, total surrender of the personal self to Buddha. And that that is a kind of, that's a selfless practice. So you could say it's a skillful means to get people to surrender their personal will to um, reality, to Buddha nature. Whereas Dogen's a little bit more, he had some teachings that were kind of like that, and some also about making great effort. So a little different style than Pure Land founders. He had some of that flavor, though, too. Like um, Dogen has a Shogenzo Shoji, Birth and Death, where Dogen says, um, just um, cast your body and mind into the house of Buddha. Throw body and mind into the house of Buddha. Then all is done by Buddha. And who could not awaken? It's kind of like a pure... Some people say it's like a pure land teaching of Dogen. Uh, do not wait expectantly for a later day to attain the way. There it is. <laughs> it must be here and now. You just must stir yourselves 
rouse yourselves and turn inward to your own square inch of self. Why does he call it a square inch? I don't know. <laughs> I've been waiting for you to explain. <laughs> yeah, funny because actually, I think it actually says here is it says mind in parentheses, but I think it actually has dika. Well, your the square inch of mind, the square inch of yourself. This boundless. Boundless, yeah, 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 yeah. So it is kind of mysterious. Um, if I had to say something, I might imagine that um, it's like um, direct your direct your focus accurately when you turn the light around um, to shine on yourself. Um, it's not a really abstract thing. Of course, yourself has no location. It's not really a square inch of location. But maybe it's it's saying. Um, do this practice meticulously and accurately. When you turn the light around, it's not a vague kind of practice. It's really asking, what is this self that is the source of these very words? And uh, so it's honing in on the boundless. So is this square inch the, the self number two? Well, that would be another way to, to talk about it, actually, mm-hmm. is that um, it's... Yeah, either self number two or self number one. Here we were just talking about self number three, uh, yeah. the boundless. But you could say the self number one is kind of a square inch kind of self. I mean, the two is kind of a square two. inch. So um, it could be heard like that, yeah. That um, or one or tuning into one can help you realize three. <clears throat> yeah, like yeah, your specific self. Yeah, I mean, if, pay attention if, to your specific self. Exactly. If it's if it's sort of in line with the Dogen study the self. It's in line with that. Although he was saying that was two, actually, like the study the... I know, the that's why I was thinking oh. this. Yeah, because that self, if you study that self, you forget that self. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and then um, you're actualized by myriad things. Yeah. In, in, in the newer translation, he, he has mind instead of self. Sure. Yeah, does it in parentheses, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, and whenever there's parentheses here, it's the it's the uh, translator's interpretation. Right. So uh, as I looked at the Japanese, it didn't actually say mind. I I think um, we just he couldn't Francis Cook couldn't bear to leave us with um, turn towards your own square inch. <laughs> it's like that's too weird. We gotta we gotta we gotta interpret it. But it does say, it does have that jiko, I think that's why he says, your own. It, so you could also translate it as um, the square inch of the self, or your own square inch. It, yeah, it's a, it's a koan for us, right? It's an unusual one. It struck me too when I heard that. Uh, I wonder if maybe instead of trying to map it onto some other scheme, it's simply like, instead of studying the world, mm-hmm. Or this whole mm-hmm. range of mm-hmm. things, like go with what Just you know. Yeah, yeah, your yeah, own yeah. Pay attention to yourself. Yeah. Don't, um, don't get dispersed. And that idea s- then of the world being contained in. Yeah, the- yeah, yeah. In your own square inch mm-hmm. of self. Um, there's another teaching from the Pali Canon that something like um, the, uh, which is a kind of Zen-like teaching, but it's in the early sutras that. 
the entire um, cosmos is contained within this fathom-long body. Something like that, right? So, um, maybe based on that kind of teaching, Dogen's getting even smaller than the <laughs> fathom-long body. And to the, there's too much in a fathom. Yeah, there's too much in Fathom's like six feet, right? Yeah. Like a body length. Let's, let's hone in on the square inch. Mm, funny. Um, but it kind of sounds like your true self, if we go forward here, because he says, search there and do not seek elsewhere. If you do such a thing, hundreds of thousands of Dharma gates and boundless matters concerning the Buddhas will all flow out of this and fill heaven and earth. That sounds like the true self to me. Uh, it's nothing but trusting the self in English with a capital S. That's, again, Jiko here. But um, search, uh, you know, turn towards your own square inch. This is nothing but trusting the true self. Um, carrying it here and carrying it away for countless eons, we might say it being um, the, the self, uh, true self, never for an instant being apart from this self. Still, if you do not know of its existence, scary word for Buddhists, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's truth, though. I think this, this self, sometimes they say it's beyond existence and non-existence, but maybe it's a little more on the existence side, or real, if it's true and real. It doesn't exist as a separate entity, as any kind of entity, but it's, um, it's more real than any other existent thing in the universe, according to Buddha nature teachings. It's a little more real. It's what we call the ultimately true self instead of the conventionally true self of the body and mind. If you do not know of its truth, the reality, you are like someone bearing it in their hands and looking for it east and west. Kind of like the jewel, the hidden jewel. However much confusion this may seem to be, it's nothing but forgetting the self. And I didn't look whether that's the same uh, phrase as in the Genjo Koan. But here has the capital S self. Um, it's, um, we're forgetting our true self in this case. Today, when we see it fully, the wonderful way of the Buddhas and the single transmission of the ancestral teachers consists in only this. So never doubt it. People, when you reach such a realm, you will never doubt the words of this world's old priests. It says above in the main case that having heard this, Jayata aroused undefiled knowing or awareness or wisdom. If you want to arouse undefiled knowing, you just have to trust in the true self. If you want to trust the self, then from birth to old age, you have to understand that it is only this one. 
with capital T and O. <laughs> as probably all capitals. <laughs> and another translation of this, um, trust is not the usual character for like shin, like faith or trust. Um, but it's uh, also can mean like you have to um, take responsibility for this true self. So a little different nuance there. If you want to take responsibility for your true self, then from birth to old age, you have to understand that it's just this, only this one. And I think there he's saying, um, we can talk, talk about this true self as is in, the, in this abstract way, right? We can keep hearing this, and as we hear it more, it can just turn into an abstraction that sounds good, and all the pieces fit into place logically. But uh, we can forget that it's this one, not like this one, not like this dualistic consciousness, but the all-inclusive one that includes all appearances, the mirror that includes all reflections in it. So this one, it's like nothing that's not it. It's not elsewhere. It's not hidden. This is how we trust the self. In summary, there's not a speck of dust to reject, not a single thing to grasp. So don't even think about arousing undefiled awareness. He's referring to the, to the original story that when Vasubandhu heard this, he aroused undefiled wisdom. So Kezan's now saying, there's nothing to abandon, nothing to receive or grasp. So don't think about trying to, trying to arouse some undefiled knowing that you don't already have, like Vasubandhu did. Mm-hmm. If we could just be like Vasubandhu, then we'd finally find this true self. I'm like, don't think like that. So why do we have all these enlightenment stories? All they seem to do is confuse us, right? I mean, because uh, then we get teachings that say, well, they'll think about realization, or realization isn't individual. Mm. Oh, you know, it's not, you know, or like that. Mm-hmm. But we there, have some... There are moments, moments of trust that came through these certain words. Each of these stories, mm-hmm. it came, almost always comes through words, interestingly, yeah. right? Or sound. Yeah, yeah. All, all our ancestors, according to this record, at least up to Kazan, nobody had realization during Zazen. <laughs> uh, great. <laughs> I, I can't say I had an experience there, but well, okay, a little. Um, but I found it those words, having heard you say it so much. With trust, this one I was hearing Kazan trying to encourage his monks, his listeners, his students. Yes, of course. And there was a little mm. breakthrough. Ah, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Mm-hmm. So all these words are. Uh, we might have little turnings, right? Little turnings. Even even conceptual little turnings when we when we kind of get something in a new way. And I think it does start conceptually. I think that's why if there were no conceptual insights, 
then why would we have thousands of pages of sutras and and the Zen tradition has more texts than any other school in China, interestingly. So it's like all these words and they're they change our concepts but and sometimes they cut right through to the to the heart and uh something turns we don't even know we just we feel different somehow sometimes when we hear things or sometimes we hear we get a little shift conceptually and then we go into zazen and it sinks in deeper all these um possibilities and sometimes you know they often often in the stories they say um it's daigo great satori sometimes this this one is aroused undefiled knowing but um uh it sounds so exalted. It sounds like they um, they broke through heaven and earth, and um, they never had to practice again or something. It has that feeling. I think this is part of the Zen trickery. <laughs> Daigo, great Satori, and um, but Satori is actually just a a. Um, it's it's a of course it's become a Zen term, but in Japanese language it's not a specifically Buddhist word. It just means to realize or understand, right. and you can you can realize or understand um, how two plus two equals four. Oh, I satori that. I see how two plus two is four, <laughs> and so um, so it could be. This is an interesting um, thing to contemplate. That I've often wondered that maybe these stories are not as dramatic as they sound. They're just like little shifts of perspective. And then they keep practicing. And, yeah. um, and, they're, and they're stories that help us make little shifts. So if we're looking for, I don't think Kazan's pointing out in this chapter too, if we're looking for big dramatic breakthrough where we completely forget who we are and we're a new person completely, um, especially if we're trying to get that and we're waiting for that, then we're missing lots of little shifts along the way and um, and we're making it into something that uh, is the very thing that will prevent it from happening because it's not something it's letting go of making anything <laughs> so uh, yeah yeah so I think there are pivotal moments there it there are shifts of perspective I like to think of it as awakening these awakening stories is like shifts of perspective and something that we're stuck often in our usual perspectives and anything that shifts it even a little bit is um, I think so helpful mm-hmm. yes um, I was reading Red Pine's uh, commentary on Platform Sutra he talks about Quainan's enlightenment experience <coughs> hearing the Diamond Sutra oh yeah in the marketplace mm-hmm. yeah and, and how there's something about the immediacy of words mm. that are heard and mm. not read that's oh, oh, yeah. these oh, yeah. because you know on a page you can stare at it and intellectualize mm-hmm. it and conceptualize it mm. really yeah that's words. true yeah um, in the early like the Abhidharma Kosha of Vasubandhu it um, describes like prajna these three types of prajna um, w- wisdom uh the first one's called Shrutamaya Prajna. Shruta means hearing through the ear. Wisdom that comes through words that are heard. And I think people now interpret that as also written teachings on reading a sutra and having a new perspective. But interestingly, 
I guess partly because in the early days when they came up with these terms, they didn't even have written text. It was all oral transmission. But it's nice that it's called the wisdom from hearing. And then um, there's the second wisdom that is chintamaya prajna. It's like the wisdom from chinta is related to chitta. It's like to mind. And, and uh, we usually say it's like to contemplating the teachings. So we hear something. It maybe makes it has a little shift, but then we take it in and we sit with it for a while. We, we, these like these discussions are are great. You could say the text is like giving the, the chintamaya praja. The discussions are doing the, or the text is doing the shutamaya. The discussions are doing the chintamaya. Um, the um, reflecting and turning it around and questions like, um, what about if we just grasp this true self? Is just another thing to grasp? And these are great things to consider, right? And otherwise we just take it, we just do grasp it, and like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to just grasp it. <laughs> and then the third type of wisdom is bhavana maya prajna, and bhavana means like cultivation, but literally bhava is like becoming. So it's like, that's, generally said, when you, through, through meditative practice, you bring what you've heard and reflected on into, into direct experience. I think it's a really helpful model for talking about studying dharma why how does studying dharma relate to our direct experience these three types of wisdom is a, is a great um framework for that and sometimes we, we um we skip the middle one too we think i can just hear it and now those words are just supposed to come in and awaken me this the middle one is maybe the long the long process of really working it and and any doubts about it reflect discussing and reflecting on and uh, yeah, yes. I've heard that I've heard it said that the middle way is something that you can read about, you can study it, you can talk to people about it. But it's in Shikantaza where you just you be the middle way. You do it. You just do it. You're not right thinking about. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Does that does that sound right? Yeah. The middle way of like Nick Arjuna's philosophy. And not trying to go <clears throat> one way toward. Being or one way toward non-being, trying to yeah. Not getting caught in it's history. really helpful to start with the words. Yeah, but at some yeah. point you, yeah. you are. You yep. It. Yep. And even Nagarjuna himself, who's the master of many words about the middle way, um, himself says um, that it's it's free from all conceptual constructions and free from all reference points. It's prapancha. It's nis nis prapancha. Uh, means prapancha sometimes it conceptual elaboration it's translated as sometimes it's translated as reference points so any conceptual reference points like yeah it's like right between existence and non-existence right, a big point in between yeah that's right sometimes they say it's not even the middle the, the true middle is not even a middle right. between two. Between two. Yeah, two right, points. right. It's no. it's completely ungraspable, right. it, and the words help can lead us there. Is it something that comes directly through the senses without being conceptualized, like seeing, hearing, tasting, touching? It could. I think traditionally they would say it's not even really through the senses. No. It's through um, through direct perception of the mind beyond the senses even. But in Zen, 
we kind of in, we we include the senses more too. So we, so um, there is direct valid cognition through the senses, um, and wow. in Indian Buddhism, there is there is the science of of valid cognition, pramana teachings, and that and there's different types of um, a valid cognition, and one of them is called sensory, direct valid cognition, when the eyes see a color with no conceptual mediation, the ears hear a sound. That's one type. There's also um, mental direct valid cognition that's kind of pre-conceptual um, registration of a color or a sound in the mind. And there's, um, and then there's this um, ref- reflexive self-reflexive direct valid cognition that's one of the types of direct valid cognition that's always happening it's a direct um, knowing of itself and awareness knowing itself and the fourth those those three are happening to everybody all the time the fourth doesn't happen to everybody all the time that's called yogic direct valid cognition and that's for like when meditators bring the teachings into meditation and, um, and um, have a, a meditative experience, direct, valid cognition of truth. So, so, um, so is it like people talk about having jumped into an ocean to save somebody with no, hmm. almost like there was no thought process that they were aware of. They just... It sounds like that's what you might be talking about. Yeah. Could be. That, that could be... Um, well, it's definitely all, all the first okay. three, yeah. because that's, in a way, it's interesting that those three are happening to all of us right now. <laughs> we're having direct perceptions of colors, and the mind is registering them, but we're also having these indirect cognitions of lots of concepts, basically we're talking. Um, but, it, but whether, yeah, I don't know whether these immediate non-thinking actions or even like, you know, um, gymnastic feats or something where somebody's so in the zone, they're not thinking at all, but their their body performs in a, um, a perfect, balanced, inexplicable feat. <laughs> Is, um, I think probably the Buddhist tradition would say, that in, at least the Indian tradition that's a little strict, might say, that's not exactly yogic direct. Um, valid cognition because that's the specific thing of um, verifying em- the specific teaching of emptiness of all phenomena based on the the middle way teachings that have been heard. <laughs> so, but it might be very very similar. I think it, it's definitely very similar in the sense of of direct um, a direct non conceptually mediated experience. Um, but maybe um, one reason it might, that the old Indian Buddhists might say, well, that might not be the, uh, so complete because part of the implication is if you've done these kind of indirect um, contemplations and then you, can, you do, can directly confirm it in this yogic direct valid cognition, then um, that has implications afterwards because then you're like, this is the teachings uh, that I've been studying, and now like there's been a direct confirmation that they're true, but the um, the uh, the gymnast or the the rescuer 
I'd be like, that was uh, totally amazing, but I have no idea how it happened and it'll probably never happen again. I don't know how to go back there. Yeah. Sometimes in Zen too, we, 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 um, we kind of celebrate not going back. That we just like, we don't know how we got here. It's grace. <laughs> we have some experience and we can't repeat it. And there's even Zen sayings like, like, um, like, don't look for the, uh, if you're a rabbit hunter, don't look for the rabbit at the same tree where you, where you found one yesterday, because it won't be there today. It's going to be at a different tree today. So, um, but I think more in um, most Buddhist traditions, I think, other than Zen, do make a point of, we should actually find some replicable ways to confirm. We shouldn't just leave this to chance. I think it's 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 a potential pitfall in the Zen tradition that it gets a little too chanty, <laughs> so that um, <laughs> so that we're just kind of waiting for something that some shift to happen, and a shift happens, but we don't really know. We just we're sitting for a long time, and it's something happened, but we don't know how to. Um, we don't know what led to it. Whereas if you can kind of like if if you're just a little more methodical, then way you can kind of like recreate a kind of verification if you have a kind of path that leads to it and there are things like that in zen too but um sounds graspy it sounds that's i think that's maybe why there aren't so many in zen is it sounds too graspy it sounds too like let's get that again that that thing again of course every every part of the definition of any direct valid cognition is that it's always fresh. It's always it's never a repeat. It's always new. Part of how this is like Dignaga and Dharmakirti, these teachers define this thing. It's never, it can't be repeated. Um, and yet, if we start to get into that thought of we'll repeat something, it's too graspy. Um, it reminds me of that saying yeah. that uh, I, I can't, I don't know who said it, but uh, that enlightenment, enlightenment is an accident. Practice makes us accident Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a modern saying. I don't think it's one of the classic sayings. I think it might be. I think it might be Jane Hirschfield. Jane Hirschfield. I think. Oh, really? Oh, could be. Well, so so there's a. We could Google it. Yeah. That's a little chancy. That was my experience in all those years. We can waste a lot of time um, waiting for accidents. And they happened. They did. But we can also, um, we could also understand that to mean like... um, there really are certain practices that make us very accident-prone. Mm. And if you keep repeating the practices, you'll have accidents constantly. Yes. <laughs> That'd be another way to hear it. Right? Yes. Yeah, it's different. Emphasizing yeah. the, 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 the accident-prone practices. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then it's not the same. You're not trying to go back to the same accident. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to... Maybe, yeah. But there's it's, a tendency to want to go back to the same accident. Yes, because yeah. Because we've known. we think of that as and it's interesting the issue of, of uh, verification too is a is a um, can be a sticky point you know Dogen says practice and verification are not two it's one of the trademark sayings of Soto Zen which 
which we could hear as one moment of practicing, which practice could be lots of different things. It could be these three types of wisdom. It could be like, um, you know, studying the Denka Roku. It could be Shikantaza. But any um, wholehearted, dropping away kind of practice is a, is a true, complete practice in one moment, verifies our true self, verifies non-duality, right? And uh, so part of the implication is that it's not then, it's not like that verification continues forever. It's like you need another moment of practice. A moment of practice is a moment of verification. So you have to practice continuously to keep verifying. But uh, I think the sticky part about verification is that um, we can think like, well, if we kind of verify some truth, then we, I feel like, well, why do we have to keep verifying it again? <laughs> you know, it's like, did we not, did we not really trust it? Um, that to me feels grasping. It's like I'm grasping for like, affirmation. To verify again? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right, like it wasn't enough to have the experience. I mm-hmm. had to, you know, grasp yeah. for some certainty, a story, an mm-hmm. understanding of what happened well, I think here we're t- verification would be like, I understand verification as a direct, non-conceptual verification. That's what I would, in, in this practice in verification or not to, I, think, I would understand confirmation or verification, or sometimes translated as realization or even enlightenment gets translated, this character's show. Um, but how do, do we, why do we even need to directly confirm again and again if we've confirmed once? Because... That's where we started. We forgot. Yeah, that, 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 that's the answer. We forget, and then we're like, yeah, what was that again? And I don't trust it. Of course. And then we need to. But at some point, when is it? Is there such thing as um, where the trust is never lost? Mm-hmm. That's a question to consider. It just wants to be preoccupied. Yeah, 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 preoccupied. And even, even of course, we do get preoccupied, but... It's um, how much do we reify the preoccupation or believe in the preoccupation. Um, sometimes it, I think it can be this, we're caught up in some habit pattern, we're enacting some ancient twisted habit pattern, and there can be simultaneously like an awareness of that, oh yeah, here he goes again. <laughs> and like, okay, like the simultaneous, I think um, that's part of the non-duality of Zen, or really, but then there's the enacting the habit pattern without being aware of it at all, and getting really caught up in something, and then, um, but you know, in this non-duality business, it's like Dogen will kind of validate even that kind of thing because he's so committed to non-duality. Like this, this um, Rohatsu Sashin in Santa Cruz we studied, Shobogenzo Daigo, great Satori. And uh, this issue of how is it when a greatly awakened one re- returns to delusion? And um, it looks like in there, Dogen's kind of celebrating this return to delusion is like kind of like bodhisattva work. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's tricky business. Because how is, is that any different from delusion? <laughs> this delusion, delusion that we start with? Yeah, sometimes doesn't a bodhisattva deliberately walk into sort of karmic uh, consequence, like yeah. you're doing things because you want to save things, but you're, mm. you're maybe kind of entering back into the world and trying to do something 
Yeah, like um, getting, getting caught up in it all and, and getting cut off from the, the ultimate. Mm-hmm. And going back into the relative and yeah. getting caught in it. Yeah. Getting mixed up. When um when a monk once asked Jiao Zhou, does a dog have Buddha nature? One time Jiao Zhou said yes. <laughs> and uh and the and the monk asked, Well, if the dog has Buddha nature, why why does Buddha nature like come into this like this flea bag of dog body. And Dada says, it, I could say the Buddha nature, knowingly and willingly transgresses. As a kind of like, kind of like bodhisattva act. To man- because we want dogs in this world. Buddha nature can manifest as a dog. Um, yeah, and then does the dog have any recollection that it is Buddha. Uh, and does that matter? It seems unverifiable. Un- it seems unverifiable, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. It matters to us. But does it matter? Is it mattering? Is that our basic delusion? Yeah, this... How do we get ourselves into this Zen thing? <laughs> oh, man. Couldn't we have, had a, have a more dualistic, straightforward practice? Like... Let's do some step-by-step build-up to some awakening and then be done with it. (laughs) Kazan says, Today, as usual, I have some humble words to address to this story. Would you like to hear them? The wind blows through the great sky. Clouds emerge from the mountain ravine. Feelings for the way and worldly affairs are of no concern at all. 